Hey guys, welcome back to The Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. Later in the show, I'm with the co-founder of the Dutch e-bike brand Van Moof, a company that's absolutely taken off during lockdown. They just raised $40 million in their mission to get another billion people riding bikes. We talk about everything from Amsterdam's history as a bike city, opportunities in the e-bike sector, to commuting bikes in a time when no one seems to really be commuting. So stick around for that. But first, I'm with Charlotte Williams. She's the founder of the diversity-focused influencer marketing agency, 7-6, which she launched last year. A few months ago, when the Black Lives Matter protests saw a resurgence, we caught up with Charlotte on this show about the lack of representation in the marketing and advertising sectors. Well, Charlotte's recently launched a crowdfunding campaign for 7-6, so I thought I'd take the opportunity to reconnect to hear what's been going on in the influencer industry during COVID. Depending on what reports you read, it's either a good time to be an influencer or it's the apocalypse. So what's really going on? Who's making money? Who's not? Who's spending what and why? And what are the opportunities to watch? Here's Charlotte. We work with micro-influencers, so under 100K. So it's difficult to say what the bigger influencers were experiencing. But I know micro side, people were still making money. I know before the BLM resurgence, I was still sought after and I was still making a lot of money during lockdown and that's why we launched our influencer network because I know that I was making money and I was being put forward for campaigns and some of them I didn't really want to do so I was like do you know what let me pass them on to people but let me do it in a professional capacity so I hired my sister to come on board and look after some talent and we just built our, our talent up from there and then we launched as well at the same time launched the network which is basically a database and it just means that when brands come in with a job, it's like, okay, we need these influencers. We can be like, yeah, I've got this list you can pick from. I think it depends on the brands, depends on the influencers and all of this. There's so many things that come into it, but we actually didn't see, even before BLM, we didn't see a dip. We saw a rise, but a rise in micro, micro. So nano to micro, not a rise in the larger influencers. So I think that's something to note that brands were switching their budget. Also things like content creation, brands weren't able to create content themselves. So they were asking influencers and content creators and creatives to create that at home for them, which is a cheaper way and a good way to get content. I think that's going to continue. That's a trend that I think will continue for a really long time. And I'm really pleased that that's a thing. I've, I have done it for years and I did it a lot more over lockdown, but it makes sense. Get a professional content creator to create your content rather than playing a studio. So it's quite difficult. I didn't see a dip, but I know companies that did. So it just depends on who your clients are. One of my clients put us on half wage, like they cut us down in terms of our hours, but then we were still working and we still had influencer posts and we still had budget and they are like a mainstream commercial store. They weren't selling on the website, but they knew that they would eventually So it just depends on the position, I guess. Do you think that nano to micro segment will remain strong? Is that like a good option for a lot of good brands? I think it's a really affordable option. I think it's a good way to dip your toe into influencer marketing because as long as you're working again with like professionals who actually, and that's why it's good to work with an agency because they can be that buffer, but working with professionals who can really do the job that you want them to do, but getting them to create content for you 
And as long as your contracts are properly done so that you've taken into account usage fees, etc., it's important to note that small influencers can provide a really big impact because you can use their content on your website, you can use their content. They don't even have to be in the picture for some of them. It can just be like photography. And I think that's a really good place to sit. We do have a lot of smaller influencers who are nano that create really good sales, which is quite surprising to some people. But we've seen some campaigns where we've put a massive influencer in who's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And then we've put in someone who's tiny, who's got like 1,200 followers. And the numbers have been the same. Numbers meaning the engagement? No, not engagement, not at all. But in terms of sales, so it's literal sales. So it's been the same. So that's really funny. That happens a lot in beauty. So we see it in beauty more than our other sectors that we work in. But I think it's because imagine you went to a spa and you absolutely loved it and you told everyone and their mum, do you know what? I absolutely love this spa. People would really take your recommendation because you're their friend or brother or whatever. For example, I'm working with Oddbox at the moment and they're just gifting me a subscription. And my first, I didn't get a code or anything, but my first subscription, my brother got a box, my mum got a box because it was like 50% off your first box. My sister-in-law got one and then a couple of my friends got them because they were like, oh, they're really good because I was like, these boxes are actually so good. I'm not being paid for anything. I just got the box and I wanted to share it. That's very different to maybe a Love Island celebrity did it. Kylie Jenner, because people would be like, oh, that's great. Fruit is great. But, you know, I'm more interested in her lifestyle. I want to just see her Instagram pictures. So there's definitely a difference, I think, between nano, micro and macro and what they can put to the table and what they can give to the brand. I think you just have to be really smart in how you use your budget as a brand. And what about if I'm a brand and I, I want to get a micro influencer, a nano influencer, in terms of the type of content, the aesthetic, the... You know, a lot of people saying the era of just perfectly positioned flat whites with a, you know, an overhead shot and like, you know, all of that stuff is just like, so five years ago and now everybody, the Gen Z wants like gritty, realistic, warts and all. Is that the kind of where we're all moving to, like hyper realistic and less polished? Yeah, I think we're moving to that, but then we're going to move back. We go in circles. I always say like, we've had our avocado toast. We're moving to like real life, but then we're going to get bored of real life and then we'll have to go back to something else everything's trend-based. Be that fashion, be that beauty, be that photography. Everything comes in trend. So right now, we're really into real life, (laughs) whatever that might mean with our filters, but real life content. And that's actually quite nice because it means that if you have acne, you can be a beauty influencer. If you have, you know, certain body disformities or if you have stretch marks, if you're a certain size, whatever it might be, you can still work in fashion and still post stuff. And it just means that more people get opportunity. And I'm so for that because not everyone looks exactly the same as we all know. So I think that's a really great trend to be on, that inclusivity as a trend, so down for, but not just in beauty within all kind of spaces, I think. You guys have launched a crowdfunding campaign for the agency. So why crowdfunding and what do you want to do with the money? So crowdfund, I'm quite spontaneous as a person. This is a fact. I spoke to the team. We chose to do a crowdfund because our team, there's currently four of us and a work experience person, so technically five, but there's four of us and we are all on like, not me because I own the company, but part-time contracts, all freelance and everything is kind of within the small capacity that we can do. But we're being inundated with brands and 
We're actually a go-to for a lot of agencies. So agencies hitting us up and giving us work, which is amazing. But we actually can only work to a certain capacity because most of the team only work three days a week. I rely on picking up the slack and working sometimes 15 hour days because I have to pick up what, you know, the other people couldn't do within their three days. And it's actually just, it's a bit overwhelming. And something that we know that our industry ad agencies 95% of them are owned by white men the class divide between middle class and upper class and working class within those white men is also quite extreme and I think it's really important to note that as an agency there are very few agencies that are owned by people who are like me not just in terms of my skin color but first of all the fact that I'm a woman um, and secondly my class and that I haven't kind of been born into a certain privilege and also with that I don't have financial backing and I don't have friends whose uncle can give me like x amount of money and all of that stuff so that's not like a cry of me being like worried to me it's just you know statistics and facts so I'm trying to make magic happen with the limited resources that we have and I just know that if we had more time if we had a little bit more money up front we could definitely do more and then you'll have the thing of why don't you get investment but what our problem is what we're doing is so sensitive that I just feel so uncomfortable with the idea of having someone have any part of the company at this point when we're really trying to figure out who we are. So we really wanted to go down a community-driven plan with this and just get a little bit of cash injection just to give us that opportunity to just bring everyone in in a comfortable space and be like, do you know what? You can work full-time. We have enough money for the next few months or however long, depending on where we reach in the crowdfund, to pay your salary and know that if anything happens and we know how fickle the world can be, we're on trend right now, but we're already seeing people not that interested in, you know, diversity focused things, even like talks. I get asked to do talks all the time and then I do the talk and then I catch up with them, you know, a few weeks, a few months later, um, talking about what are you doing internally? How's your, you know, anti-racism agenda and all of that going? And they're like, mm, yeah, good. And I know that people have left the company because nothing's happened and I'm getting you know, little tidbits from people on LinkedIn DMing me saying I left because they didn't do anything your, after your talk. You know, nothing happened. And so you were just kind of like the rubber stamp. Yeah. Like tick mark. Like we did. We did something. Tick mark. Yeah, we did that. So we're trying to work on that now and making sure that everyone that we've done talks for and we've done workshops for, we can go back. It's, this is our next two weeks. Go back and be like, hey, what's going on? Just to check because they need more work happening and I just don't want anything to falter I want there's a reason why I'm doing the job I do I could work for another agency and get paid a really big wage and live a very gloss easy lifestyle I've chosen weirdly not to do that and I work stupid amount of hours and I have a very unglamorous lifestyle and I'm someone's boss lots of people's boss and I don't want to be anyone's boss and I'm doing a lot and I'm just like okay let's just do it and make sure we do it properly so that's where we're at we've, we've launched a crowdfund to just in my eyes give the team kind of what they deserve I'm hoping that the people that have followed me off of the back of the Black Lives Matter movement and me doing talks about racism and anti-racism and ways that they can help in their companies and their you know at home or whatever it might be all the tips that I've given free of charge all the one-to-ones I've had with people who've wanted to pick my brain over the last three years all of that stuff I'm just hoping that they will just be like, do you know what? I really want to be part of this journey. 
let's help make a difference and that's kind of why we we launched it and we're hoping to even if we don't reach the full you know amount that we're looking for we'll be happy with what whatever we get just because I know that it's not going to me it's going to my team who are working really hard and something that I'm really proud of is we did some um I'm working with my accountant at the moment for our end of year accounts for last year and we were going through this year's and I've noticed a number that I I hadn't really I don't look at I'm not an admin person I don't look at numbers that often and we realized that in the last three months just under to be honest three months we've actually paid fifteen thousand pounds out to black and brown content creators from the partnerships that we've done and i'm actually i don't know how that scales with other agencies but knowing that we have been around for a year just over a year and we only launched this service in june and it really went live in july and we've been able to pay that amount of money to these people, especially during this time when money is so important to be able to pay your bills during COVID for a lot of people is difficult. And that we've been able to give money to our kind of extended community makes me feel really proud of what we're doing. And regardless of whether I have a fancy house or not, I'm happy that I'm actually providing, not it's not even a service, I'm providing something that's helping people's like lives and livelihoods and hopefully careers in the future. So yeah, that's where we are there. It's just an interesting process. I'm, I've never done anything like this before, so it's just like, oh, who knows what's going to happen. That was Charlotte Williams from 7-6. Next up, we talk e-bikes. Dutch brothers Taco and Thies Carlier founded an e-bike business called Van Moof 11 years ago. Their goal was to get a billion more people on bikes, and they're doing it with a pretty intense and efficient R&D and production process, and by selling the bikes online directly. The pandemic hasn't hurt things either. As tons of people abandoned the tube and subways and buses, tons of them decided to pick up a bike, and a lot of those were e-bikes. E-bike sales in the US actually rose 190% in June this year compared to last year, and Van Moof has saw its revenue explode during lockdown as well. I caught up with Taco from his home base in Amsterdam just a bit ago to find out more. It's a big change that's going on right now. And you're right, the e-bike sales were um, already growing with rates like 40% to 70% year on year before COVID. I think this is what's going on. In my hometown of Amsterdam, almost 50% of the commutes is on a bike. That's easy because Amsterdam is flat, it's pretty small and the climate is very bike friendly. But if you want to commute on a bike in New York, London, San Francisco, Paris, Tokyo, it's much harder. And e-bikes solve that. They flatten hills, they shrink cities, and they prevent any sweating on uh, warm days. And therefore, I believe that e-bikes will dramatically increase the amount of cyclists in cities all over the globe. So that's what's happening uh, right now. And you see it everywhere. You see in London, Paris, New York, you see a dramatic increase in the amount of cyclists on the streets. And uh, lots of them are uh, e-bikes. I think e-bikes, they remove the barriers for the masses to go to commute on a bike. And therefore, they're key to getting the, the masses on bikes and turn cities all over the globe in healthier, greener and, and more livable places. So I believe this is just the beginning. But if nobody's commuting anymore, what good is a commuter bike? That's a little bit a strange thing. So uh, there's a big e-bike boom going on. The amount of e-bikes was already growing very fast uh, before COVID, but COVID pushed everything forward and sales are going to the roof right now. 
It's a little bit strange because on one hand, people are not commuting that much anymore. On the other hand, yeah, people want to get out. They can't use public transport, obviously doesn't have the capacity anymore. So people are looking for new alternatives, such as walking, cycling and e-bikes. But you're from London, right? I'm from, yeah, I live in London. I'm from New York. But yeah, London's not really a city necessarily made for cycling, although they are changing a lot of the infrastructure right now to be a bit more cycle friendly. I don't agree with that. I mean, that's what everybody said about Paris too. And this summer, everything changed. They closed down a few avenues and the bikes popped up everywhere. I also believe you see more and more bikes on the streets in London every day. Uh, so I, I don't agree with that. I think... Uh, yeah, there's certainly more bikes. But I mean, do you think living in and being from Amsterdam changes how you think most people use bikes? Because obviously that's the most bike-friendly city on the planet, probably Amsterdam. But, you know, other cities are really not built for it. No, it did open my eyes. I, I, I don't agree with that. I think that's what everybody's saying, that Amsterdam was built for bikes and we can never do that in Paris and New York, San Francisco and London. But it's just not true. I mean, Paris proved everybody wrong this summer. They did make a few changes. They closed a few avenues, not all, but just a few. And cyclists popped up everywhere. And also in London, it's increasing fast. You see more and more bikes everywhere. And everybody thinks that Amsterdam always has been like this. This is also not the case. In the 70s and 80s, a few great hippies stood up and said, we don't want these cars anymore, get them out and let's build bike lanes. And they did. Since then, it started growing. In the 60s, Amsterdam was completely overtaken by cars. Oh, I didn't know that at all. So it was actual, um, it was a conscious decision to kind of become bike friendly. It wasn't like ingrained in the culture for centuries. No, definitely not. Of course, Amsterdam has the perfect condition. So it was kind of logical that it started in Amsterdam. I always say Amsterdam, but Copenhagen and some German cities are, are, are just as good. But now that e-bikes appear, that e-bikes are invented, the conditions in San Francisco, London, Paris and Tokyo are just as good as in Amsterdam because of e-bikes. That's what the revolution uh, is about. I think London is kind of um, an exemption right now in Europe. I haven't been in London in the past six months. But what I heard about it is that it's completely closed down. Most people moved out of the cities. All offices are closed. And therefore, in London, you're right, nobody's commuting anymore. But in most German, Dutch, French, Belgium cities, it's not like that. It's, yes... People of the big companies are working out of home and still a lot of people are working out of home, but people still commute as people still have to commute. And as they can't use the public transport as much anymore, uh, people are looking for alternatives and end up with e-bikes. Commuting has gone down, but not as dramatically in Lo as in London. And I read that you guys sold more bikes in the first kind of quarter of this year than you did, you know, in the previous Many, many, many months prior. I mean, obviously, I, I assume because of COVID. Were you guys um, prepared for such a, a surge in what must be a really kind of a complex production process? Uh, yes and no. I think, of course, this is such a weird circumstances. Nobody was prepared for that. But we were prepared much better than other bicycle companies. But that's not because we prepared for a pandemic, but we just were because of our approach. And our approach is that I founded the company together with my brother 11 years ago. And 
what we did is completely reinvent how bikes are made. All other bicycle brands consist for 90 to 95% of standard parts. So they all use the same brakes, lights, rear hubs, wheels, you name it. What we did in the past 11 years is redesign every component of the bike. It started 11 years ago with hardware like frames, lights, pedals, wheels, that kind of stuff. Then seven years ago, the focus slowly converted to electronics, batteries, motors. And since one year, the focus is more and more on the, on the software part. So that's the smartphone apps, the backend software. Because we are circumventing the entire bike industry, we didn't have as much issues as other parties because yeah, everybody's selling more, more bikes, so everybody needs more components right now. And that's where the big issues are. The suppliers of the components, they can't scale up fast. They can only scale up with five to 10, maybe 15% per year, but not 200% like we do. So we were lucky that we are independent of the, of the bike industry, produce a design and produce our own components. Uh, so we were able to scale up much faster uh, during the pandemic. Still, it was not good enough. Uh, demand was just almost unlimited. We, uh, we could have sold even more, but um, this is what it is. And what's the market look like in terms of your competitors? So is this a, a market where any number of e-bike companies can jump in and start up with it? I imagine what must be a huge amount of initial capital they need to start an e-bike company, but is it a winner take all thing or is there room for you know 15 different e-bike players? In the past, it was everybody could start at an e-bike company and they still can. You just go to China, you buy uh, some e-bikes, design your own brand, put a sticker on it and you have your own e-bike brand. Maybe you can even put the wheels on it in the UK and then you can say it's assembled in the UK. Bang, you have your own brand. A lot of people have been doing that, still doing that and it's, uh, sometimes it works. We did it completely different. There's two things that differ if I move from all the other parts, for the first is our focus on, on engineering, on R&D. For, so for the past 11 years, with a team of now up to 60, 70 people redesigning the entire supply chain, applying the rules of the, not the bike industry, but the consumer electronics industry. That's the first thing that differs if I move from any other brands. And the second part is that we sell direct. Not many Companies do that in the bicycle industry. 99% of the bikes are still sold via pretty small independent bike stores. So that's the two things. We redesigned the supply chain and we sell directly to our customers. So directly means we have 11 flagship stores all over the globe. We have stores in Seattle, San Francisco, New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, Amsterdam, and Taipei and Berlin, but we sell 95% of the bikes online. So that's what differs us from all other brands. If we look at competition, most of the brands are still really traditional, being in the market for 50 to 100 years and really local. Every country has its own brands. In Holland, we have Gazelle and Batavus. In Germany, we have Kalkhof. I think in the UK, it's Rally. In, in France, it's Peugeot, every country has its own brand and all these brands have a large range of models. We believe that model is very inefficient and it can be done much better in a more modern digital way. And that's what we're trying to do. So just two models, but all over the globe, uh, sell directly to consumers. In that way, we are able to produce better bikes for a more affordable price. At Courier, we're always 
we're always on the lookout for you know really interesting gaps in the market and opportunities for smart people who want to start a company. I mean, are there any opportunities that aren't explicitly in making bikes and selling bikes, but maybe on the periphery of the industry, you know, accessories, apps, you know, charging hardware that, you know, people could have a lower barrier to entry? That's the perfect way to start a business. That's what we did do. We started 20 years ago with our first company, which we started with uh, just 1,000 euros starting capital. We founded an identification wristband design company, did that for 10 years, then hired a CEO, and then used the cash flow from our first company, it's called Dutch Band, to start our second company, Vamoof. What is interesting at the moment is that I believe that the business model of the traditional bike shop is dead because that business model is based on selling bikes in combination with, with fixing bikes. But selling bikes becomes more and more difficult. Bike sales is shifting more and more online. Brands are selling more and more direct. So bike sales is going down. But I think there's still a good business model in setting up repair shops or independent fixing bikes on the spot. I think there's some really interesting opportunities. In terms of accessories, I would doubt that. It's a very crowded market. A lot of people like bikes, they, they ride bikes, they invent accessories. It's very crowded and it's difficult and there are not many successes known from that part. And with accessories, I mean a bike lights, mounts for iPhones on, on your steering bar, new helmets, new um, raincoats. There are some good examples, but it's very, very crowded. And that's it this week. As always, if you've got any questions or comments, just hit me up at daniel at couriermedia.co. Courier Weekly is back again next Friday. Thanks for tuning in.